Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The most valuable thing about healthcare isn't the medicine or the technology. It's the people. The healthcare industry brings together brilliant, highly motivated experts. If you'd like to learn more about today's most unique game changers, then check out the Heart of Healthcare podcast right here on the Oscar Health Podcast Network. Join host Holly Teco, founder of Natalist and Rock Health, as she talks with the industry's most exciting experts. Check out the 23andMe episode, where 23andMe founder Anne Wojcicki shares the highs and lows of this journey, including getting an FDA warning letter, going public, and genotyping over 12 million customers. In an episode called The Crooked Truth About D2C Dentistry Startups, orthodontist and entrepreneur Dr. Ingrid Mora explains the state of venture-backed dentistry. The number of online companies offering mail-order invisible aligners is booming, but Dr. Mora says some are ruining people's teeth and harming their overall health. For more information, visit offscript.com slash shows. That's offscript, no T, dot com slash shows. The link will be in our show notes. Enjoy the show. Have you ever heard about a promising new medical treatment that is actually something that has been around for a very long time? From Offscript Health, welcome to Before We Die, the podcast where you'll meet the medtech innovators who will share the hurdles, successes, and heartbreaking failures in getting their products to patients before we die. I'm Joey Brenneman from Offscript Health. Now, this is not a podcast about death and dying, quite the opposite. It is about the amazing technological advances in the medical industry that could potentially save lives. Our guest today is Dr. Hector DeLuca, a chemist and emeritus professor at the University of Wisconsin and the godfather of vitamin D research and discovery. Dr. DeLuca has dedicated his career to the study of vitamin D research and its applications. He has over 200 active U.S. patents, numerous awards and recognitions, and was nominated twice for the Nobel Prize. And you'll never believe this, but he is 92 years young, and he is still going into the lab to continue his research. And while vitamin D may not seem like a technological breakthrough, it has led Professor DeLuca to his next big therapy. And spoiler alert, it is not vitamin D. It's a device. Joining us for this conversation is our resident panel of experts and the Before We Die creators, Sandra Miller. Hi, Joey. John McMahon. Hi, Joey. And Craig Allman. Hi, Joey. And all of us are thrilled to welcome Dr. Hector DeLuca to our show. Dr. DeLuca, we are so honored that you are here with us and talking with us today at Before We Die. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Yeah, very happy to be here. I think, Professor DeLuca, are you actually broadcasting to us today from the Hector DeLuca building? Uh, Yes. um, These buildings, uh, there are three of them. 
There's the original biochemistry building where I studied. It's over there. And then uh, I was chair of biochemistry for 30 years also. So uh, we were able to build on different uh, structures and build biochemistry to a big department. And uh, so I'm sitting in one of the buildings. It's called uh, <laughs> the Hector DeLuca Biochemistry Annex. So I'm guessing that all of our listeners have bottles of vitamin D in their cabinets. They have probably been told as children to drink their milk, get out in the sun. And recently, you know, vitamin D was trending again, if we could say that during COVID, we got we heard all these things about, oh, you know, take vitamin D and had this resurgence, so to speak. But I'm going to guess that your relationship with vitamin D is a little bit more complex and (laughs) a little more deep and richer than that. Well, certainly it's gone for a long time. I did my thesis work with Professor Harry Steenbach, who discovered the irradiation process for producing vitamin D. So the history of uh, Wisconsin biochemistry is that the vitamins were actually discovered here by Elmer McCullum. He discovered vitamin A uh, and then somewhat later discovered the B complex Wisconsin became a center for vitamin research. So this was like a time before vitamins. I mean, it's it's hard for me to even think like, oh, there was there was a time before vitamins. This has just always been part of our lives. But you're talking about like before they were we even had names for them. That's right. In, in 1910, vitamins were unknown. Wow. And in fact, uh, a German chemist coined the name vitamin. He, he said there are vital amines in the diet that are needed. Uh, he was using that to explain why animals could not live on a, a diet of pure carbohydrate, protein, fat, and salts. Wow. And so he said there are vital amines that are needed. Anyway, that's how the culture of vitamin research took place at the University of Wisconsin. So, Dr. DeLuca, it sounds like you were sort of at the epicenter where all of these things were happening with vitamins, being in the Steenbach lab. Is that correct? Well, that's correct. All of that happened before my time. I mean, I wasn't even born yet. Uh, you know, <laughs> and it was, uh, but when I came to Wisconsin, by that time, the vitamins were all discovered and known. The B-complex had been broken down. But many of them, we didn't know how they worked. And so Steenbach became very interested in, in how vitamin D works. And that's how I was brought into uh, research in 1951 to begin studying how does vitamin D end up keeping the skeleton calcified so rickets did not develop. That's essentially what launched uh, my career in vitamin D. When I completed my PhD in 1954, Professor Steenbach was retiring and he asked if I would stay on to help direct the remaining graduate students that were in the laboratory. I happily did so because I was doing what I love to do, and I stayed there. And then the uh, department, uh, under the direction of Dr. Conrad Elvium, who was known for his discovery of niacin, was chair of biochemistry and said, well, if you want to become a member of this department, you have to go away and study. So they sent me away to England to study for a year at Cambridge University at the Strangeways Laboratory. So... I learned the strange ways of science, I guess. <laughs> That's terrific. I came back. Um, I had a choice of what I could work on, and I thought, how does vitamin D work? 
And that's where I decided to spend my time. And I've been with it ever since. Tell us a little bit more about, are there more forms of vitamin D with different effects? You know, tell us a little bit more. Uh, it might be helpful to step back in, into that history again. The, the first major discovery uh, in vitamin D uh, was done by Holchinsky in, in, in Germany. And the reason was that in Northern Europe and England, rickets, which is a vitamin D deficiency disease where the skeleton fails to calcify, that was in epidemic proportions. As many as 80% of children in the cities of, of England suffered from rickets. There are mild forms and then there are very severe ones. And the more severe ones, the chest cavity collapses, uh, causing pulmonary dysfunction, and those children died. Uh, so it was a serious disease. And one of the things that brought that on just culturally in England was it was an industrial revolution. They had a lot of children going to work young. So they had, you know, developing pollution, poor sunlight, and then putting children to work in factories instead of having them outside. So that epidemic of rickets, it wasn't like there was a long history of it. Sort of environmentally, that lack of exposure on the children drove that. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, it's wonderful that we're not as familiar with rickets now, right? I mean, that's... that's yeah, in those days, uh, the children just did not get exposed to ultraviolet light. And in, uh, especially England, but in Northern Europe, it was an epidemic proportions, also in China. There, there is a bit of a story. We should sort of have more awareness about the this Ricketts episode, if you will, because it speaks so strongly to the impacts of climate environment and sort of things that are going on in society, like having kids, uh, little kids work in factories. So we shouldn't lose that lesson. Scientists, you know, helped us sort of get beyond it, but it's it's really important. Well, it really is. Uh, but, you know, you also have the dermatologists now who warn you should not get too much sunlight because of the cancer risk. And uh, they certainly have a valid, uh, valid point. Uh, but very brief exposure to sunlight gives you plenty of vitamin D at the in, in summer months, of course. In, in so let's let's actually, let me ask you about that, because if I'm listening to this, I can imagine people are going, okay, what does he mean by very brief? There, a lot of people have so much awareness about getting too much sun exposure because of skin cancer, you know, fears and so forth. Do we have a sense for what very brief, i.e. appropriate levels of sun exposure mean? Sure, I think I can give you a, a little bit of a, a measurement there. 10 minutes of summer sun, like July sun, on arms, face, and hands is enough to give you your daily supply of vitamin D. The other interesting aspect is that the vitamin D made in skin does not leave the skin unless it meets with its carrier protein in the blood. That's just been a recent discovery. Furthermore, you can't be poisoned with vitamin D by sunlight. It just doesn't get out of the skin, and not enough of it is made to poison you, whereas vitamin D can be toxic when taken in large amounts from synthetic sources. What about the winter months, though? Because we say the summer months, so... We'll... Well, it depends where you are. If you're at the equator, you're making vitamin D because the sun's coming in at the right angle. But in the winter months, you don't make vitamin D. We do tend to store some, 
Vitamin D supplementation especially is important in the far reaches of North north and south hemispheres. And one nuance of that is that the atmosphere absorbs the particular wavelength of interest, ultraviolet B, as a function of the atmosphere. So when the sun is low in the winter, it's like a garnish, like you're doing a garnish, right? You come through sideways on an orange, you'll get a whole lot of rind. And that thickness is really what filters it out. So it's not the temperature or that you just need to be 10 minutes out in the winter. It's actually, there's a less of that ultraviolet in the winter in Northern or Southern latitudes. Right, and it comes in at the wrong angle so that it has to, it doesn't penetrate nearly so well. It's so funny too, because I think our education, when you, John, you feel like even when you say UVB, I hear it differently. And it's amazing to me how I realize we're sold UVA, UVB, these things get thrown out like on commercials with sunscreen. And we just adopt these words without really understanding what they do, what we need, what we should actually be doing. And it's like, okay, well, the commercial told me I should use UVA, UVB sunscreen. And I adopt that without really knowing what that means. Yes. UVA uh, doesn't make much vitamin D, but UVB does because the UVB has radiation at 280 nanometers, which is exactly where the absorption of 70 hydrocholesterol uh, is. And it takes on the, vi- the, the energy, which causes the photoisomerization that ends up producing vitamin D. Uh, I love a good nanometer discussion as much as the next guy. So, um, and narrow band UVB is actually 311, correct? 311 nanometers. Okay, yeah. you guys, you're geeking out a little too much here. This so- is going to come in later in discussion because UVB and UVA do different things. Yeah. We've learned a lot about vitamin D and UVB, but there are other things happening for the whole spectrum of ultraviolet light. Okay, so, but let's cover our bases first. Our listeners and, you know, and some of them are patients, some of the the discoveries you've made over the year, you know, they're over the counter. You can, you don't need a prescription to buy them. So all of the compounds that we've discovered require a prescription. They're, they're actually medications. Vitamin D, you know, that was discovered a long time ago, and it's, it's a dietary factor and is available over the counter. That's the only form of vitamin D you can get over the counter. Got it. How much vitamin D do you take yourself as the global leader in this research, and which type of vitamin D do you take? I take vitamin D3, which is uh, in a normal vitamin supplement. I take a supplement of multivitamin, and that's all I take. What's the dose? I think I take 800 units a day. Okay, audience. You've heard it here, 800 <laughs> a day, D3. So you've made things that you have to get a prescription for, for vitamin D. What are, what are some of those medicines? For example, people without kidneys, they cannot convert vitamin D to this active form, which is 125-dihydroxy vitamin D. And that's sold as a prescription drug by several companies, uh, which is used for people that are on dialysis who don't have kidneys anymore, right? That's one example. There are people who have genetic uh, difficulties in converting vitamin D to its active form 
uh, such as vitamin D-resistant rickets, um, vitamin D-resistant osteo osteomalacia. There are about 30 uh, different kinds of indications where the active forms of vitamin D, they're one hydroxylated, they're called vitamin Ds, are very useful to uh, keep the vitamin D systems operating. In that one subset of patients, that's about a half million patients in the U.S. a year on dialysis that are deficient at that, just to give some scale. That's correct. Yeah. So worldwide, that's quite a few people that require it. One of the things that, you know, people hear when it comes to developing drugs is that it takes a long, long time. Yeah. Well, fortunately, the uh, FDA is very sympathetic for something new that helps people, and they give permission for you to use uh, drugs that haven't yet been approved. The FDA has to be extremely careful because new drugs, they're, they're dangerous. So um, I have great respect for what is required. You know, once you discover a compound, it may take five or six years in order to do all the clinical trials and toxicology synthesis to be sure you're not giving anything besides that material. You have to be very careful when it goes into human beings like that. So You spoke about the active form of D3 that you sort of identified it in 71, and I think that became available commercially in 79. So that one, I think, is about eight years. Are things faster or slower now for, for new discoveries? They're certainly not faster. Um <laughs> Because the same requirements plus some additional ones have, you know, come into play. And it's necessary. You're torn because there are people that could really use it. And yet you're always concerned that you might introduce some difficulty that is unforeseen. And you certainly don't want to kill somebody with a new drug if it hasn't been adequately tested. So I'm sympathetic with that. And I know it's hard, but... Um, uh, we try to move as fast as we can uh, to get it get it out there. A quick note on scale, though. So some people have made their entire careers by finding one single drug, and you've identified eight commercial drugs, and you gave us one example where it's helping 500,000 patients a year in the U.S. From the impact you've had on your research, these are rock star numbers of discoveries you've done. It's helping so many patients. It, we're just really fortunate to have a chance to, to have you tell us about it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. As a scientist, rarely do you get an opportunity to get feedback to make you feel good about what you're doing. And uh, the vitamin D story certainly provided that. Yes. And the vitamin D story has taken you into new territory. And I'm sure that our audience is very curious about that. So... Let's take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to Professor DeLuca about his latest discoveries. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued 
at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Professor Hector DeLuca, who has committed his lifetime to vitamin D research, for which he has over 200 U.S. patents. But recently, he received his first device patent for his discoveries using UV lights to suppress clinical symptoms of multiple sclerosis. But before we get into all of that, Professor DeLuca, we understand that you've been nominated for the Nobel Prize twice for chemistry. That is an amazing honor. Well, I've heard about that, and I've had uh, uh, colleagues that have written uh, letters in support, so I know about them. It's something you'd, you'd love to reach for, but whether you receive it or not, I think the the people have to weigh what you've done versus what the impact is. So to have a lot of people out there who are putting your name in the in the hat, I think is quite a testimony in and of itself. So so that's really special. All right. So now let's sort of move on to some new territory. We've gotten this great background about all these amazing discoveries um, and how it's benefited patients. For example, we know that people who are maybe have lower levels of vitamin D that can be a predictor for several poor health outcomes, things like heart disease, asthma, cancer, dementia, multiple sclerosis. So tell us about your more recent work that has led you to a, a new focus. Our new focus is um, we realize that, uh, you know, ultraviolet light is a very broad spectrum and uh, it does a lot of things. And the vitamin D story goes way back a hundred years, you know, uh, in development. But I think there's more to ultraviolet light than vitamin D. And we've learned that by looking at the disease, multiple sclerosis, right? The focus on it was a scientist by the name of Goldberg in the 1970s noted that MS is in higher uh, incidence as you go further away from the equator. So as you get less and less sunlight, direct sunlight, the incidence of these, this disease goes up. His suggestion was that it might be vitamin D and that vitamin D maybe should be considered as a therapy for uh, MS patients. We're intrigued by that idea. It actually went all the way to clinical trials. In fact, ordinary vitamin D was given in such doses that some of the patients were put into hypercalcemia, but it had no benefit. So clearly the light relationship was not through vitamin D. And for, for scale, so between the Tropic of Cancer and Tropic of Capricorn, there's pretty much no MS. From there, for the U.S. listeners to get to the Mason-Dixon line below that, it's 20 times more prevalent than anywhere near the equator. And it doubles the further you get away from the equator. The MS is not only more often, but it's actually more severe as well. But vitamin D from these trials showed it was something else. And uh, as the champion of vitamin D, what did you think when you heard that? We had done animal experiments to convince ourselves that in the experimental model of MS that we were using, Vitamin D did nothing, and it, it simply caused hypercalcemia. 
Uh, and when you got hypercalcemia, you did get some suppression of disease, but hypercalcemia is a disease in itself. You cannot treat people uh, by causing hypercalcemia. So we begin to consider the idea that maybe it's a different wavelength of light that is useful in preventing this disease. And in fact, that proved to be the case. What we do know is that this uh, wavelength of light does work in the animal model. It does completely block the uh, experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis, which is the model, mouse model of uh, multiple sclerosis. And, and so for the listener, when you're doing an animal study like that, you're giving it a, a disease that's very similar, this EAE model. But what does that experiment look like? So, like, do you have to do blood samples to see if the animals are sick? No, uh, it's observational. What happens is these mice, their tails drop. They lose ability to, to move their tail. That's the first indication. So wait, can we just quickly, for multiple sclerosis, can we just talk for somebody who's fortunate enough to not be as familiar with it? What is multiple sclerosis? Well, multiple sclerosis is a disease uh, whereby you lose the ability or nerves lose the ability to control muscles. It's a, it's a neurological disease. Uh, the muscles are functional, but the signal is not working. And that's why that, that animal model for somebody that does know MS or, or patients, for those patients, they would they would resonate with that story that your tail drops, your back legs drop. You, do you give them lights once a day? Do you leave lights on them all the time? Sort of what's your analogy for how much light is helpful for this model? Uh, this induces a disease to proceed. It turns out that if you irradiate those animals with this uh, UVA, which is a 400 uh, or 330 nanometer light, you prevent the disease from happening, okay? You can stop the disease at whatever stage it is. It doesn't go any further. And are you doing it daily or are you leaving the lights on all the time? Just some scope of how much light seems to be talking to the immune system of these mice. Very, very good point. These mice are irradiated every day, few minutes every day, they get this narrow band light. And uh, we do it five days a week. If you give it every other day, what happens is you're about 60% protective. If you give it less, it less protection. So it looks like whatever is produced by this narrow band light in skin has a lifetime of somewhere around 24 hours. So you have to keep replenishing that. So if this therapy uh, ends up being used in human beings, I suspect that they will have a brief exposure to this narrowband light every day, just for a few minutes every day. So when you say irradiate and that you're using a narrowband of light, you're talking about a specific light device that you now have the patent for, and that device is providing light that is similar to what you can get from the sun? The sun has produces a broad band of light. It tends to be more therapeutic than using broadband UV. Broadband UV would work, but you will get sunburn, you'll get blisters, you'll get, you know, you'll be limited in how much you can give of that light. So you can give more of this narrowband light before you get into the side effects. What would you estimate is the, the timeline to get a therapy like this to patients? 
Okay, so this light is, is now being used for psoriasis, okay, which is a dis, you know, disease of the skin. Uh, so it has been out there and has been used for that. So that means there's, there's experience and you don't have to worry about a lot of side effects because that would have shown up already. So that part is done. What we don't know is this works in the animal model. Does it work in people? That is the next and most important test. So far, we believe that the animal model has been adequate in other respects, that it's telling us the truth. But until we do that human trial, we don't know absolutely. How many people, Professor, do you have on this project now? And one of the things we talked about, an extensive career, you're obviously excited to keep going after this. So can you describe how many people are helping you? Well, I have about 10 people still uh, working in the laboratory, working on different aspects. Some are still working on uh, some of the vitamin D questions that we want to finish up. And we think we can help a lot of people if this works. We can stop that disease from going any further. And so when you have early detection of this disease, MS, if they undergo radiation, it won't proceed any further. They won't be in the wheelchair. You see what I'm saying? What I'm really excited about this is in your experience with working in vitamin D3 for that active form of D3, you're really going after a focus. But once you developed it, it now treats about 30 different types of patients that have that deficiency. I believe in looking at what you're doing for this work in MS, that you're really going to uncover something that treats autoimmunity. And I think it's going to be just a global fundamental advancement in our understanding of our immune system. I mean, if, if it only takes minutes of sunlight, your body must be hungry for that sunlight. When I think about it, like it, it must be ready if it gets access to that sunlight to do what it wants to do. You know, we're we're really excited to have you on here. And, you know, we're big believers in, in that approach. And, you know, we know it's in the right lab with the right team uh, in the right hunt. You know, I'm, I'm so happy to hear you say that. That's exactly right. I'm anxious to get it out there as soon as possible. In the meantime, we're going to look to find out what it is that it's producing. We're trying to find that out. That's not an easy job. Well, everybody's counting on, you're the right pet. We thought of you sort of the Indiana Jones of uh, immune drug discovery. It's really exciting. One of the things that has been so fun about our time with you is that you know, it's sort of a celebration of science and that there are real people who have played such critical roles in built in having those breakthroughs along the way to get us to this point, because those discoveries sort of influenced you in different ways, I'm sure, and you've built upon those. But it's just important for us all to hear about someone who's working on that path to get to something that could have such an incredible impact. Oh, thank you. I, if we could help these poor people that are you're headed toward the wheelchair, it, that's rewarding enough right there. And we're going to do it, aren't we? That's right. Go get them. <laughs> I believe you are. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We know you're a busy person. So thank you so much for being here with us on Before We Die. Yeah, get back to work. 
Get back to that lab. Thank you, Hector. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We are so honored to have had Professor Hector DeLuca on our show. I know for me, I have never talked to a Nobel Prize finalist before. So that in and of itself is very exciting. Craig, what are your thoughts after listening to him? I realize Hector's from the Midwest, but what does it take to get this guy to take a bow? I've never heard of someone who's been nominated for the Nobel who just made it sound like somebody wrote a letter. (laughs) He's returned $2 billion in royalties to the university. And, you know, we we had to drag uh, at the end of it that, oh, yeah, they've named two buildings after him. Three. Uh, That's right. It's three buildings. And by the way, universities very rarely name buildings after their, you know, even most distinguished faculty. So the fact that they've done that is like, it's a really big deal. And the drugs he's uh, invented have made tens of billions of dollars in sales. So, I mean, you would think he'd have at least a little bit of an ego. I mean, you know, he could certainly at least clear his throat when he says something about, you know, what he's accomplished. But no. We actually have sort of build some conversations and a relationship up with Hector, but you got to tease everything out of him. You can't get this guy to to start talking about himself. And I don't know if it's the Midwest or the vitamin D or what it is. It's probably what's contributed to his success. Like he's focused on other things. And I really admire that. So John, to talk a little bit more about how, how you know him, how you came across him. In one of the projects we're doing, which is cytokine, we're looking at the light uh, interaction with the body, how it communicates with the inflammation. And we had found a study where somebody actually compared sunlight naturally from phototherapy, 311, to uh, vitamin D supplements and found that if you're upstream, if you let the body naturally produce it, it's really, really much more stable for your immune system. And so I'd seen that. And then there was this article that I thought, well, you could never do the opposite. You could never do a test where you just looked at sunlight, but not the vitamin D to take it out of the system. And Hector in his lab had published that they did that exactly in mice. So when he was trying to prove what MS needed for vitamin D, which he talked about, they genetically engineered these mice not to make vitamin D. And then they showed that you could still shine the light on them and totally dial in how many mice survived. And I found that publication and I picked up the phone and I called. I said, this is just amazing. You've separated vitamin D from sunlight. You can go the other way, but he genetically did it. And it just started a relationship. So we actually have him as an advisor for cytokines and the opportunity to introduce him to uh, to the community seemed like something we really, really shouldn't miss. What do you mean you picked up the phone? Like, did you pick <laughs> up the phone and he answered? Or like, how long did it take to actually talk to him for the first time? Because he doesn't know you from Adam. You could be a wackadoodle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might have done this more than once, right? But uh, he was actually very, very approachable. I think he probably responded to the first email. But, uh, you know, it's interesting because one of the things he said, and this has to go about his work in MS, which he was also humble about, the first trial that gave vitamin D to MS patients, they totally gave massive, massive amounts and messed with these people's uh, kidneys. And I, I said to him, why didn't they reach out to you? I mean, you invented it. 
right? They could have just called you. You would have told them. He says, I can't have people picking up the phone and calling me. And I go, Hector, I picked up the phone and called you, right? <laughs> so you answered the phone. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, he's like, well, I don't want to criticize them. But, you know, if you, you should at least try and find the inventor when you're going to now actually go to treat patients with it. To me, that uh, uh, knowledge is power. And, and to see somebody not reach out to somebody as approachable as him means they didn't even try once because he would have returned the call. In the old days, I'm thinking of like Jonas Salk. He came up with a vaccine for polio and was instantly world famous. Scientists aren't famous anymore. There's only a handful of people who came up with the RNA vaccine that both Moderna and Pfizer use. It was like one guy did it in like two weeks. Isn't it actually a woman too? Isn't there also yeah. a woman involved? So. Yeah. And I do know from my <laughs> Kurdish friends that they are both Kurdish. So I don't know their name, but I know they're both uh, war refugee Kurds. So. Okay, so this is our homework, actually. We're going to find that out next time we're coming back with those names because that'll be our goal, make these people famous. My point is if, if we wanted to contact them, we probably could because they're not famous even though they've saved the lives of millions and millions of people. And we're in, we live in a time when people don't believe in science because we're not giving scientists their due. We're not focusing on the importance of scientists. And, and the, the two facts are really, really deeply related. I think it's really important for the listeners to know how many millions of people he's affected in his career, how many millions of people's lives he's improved. You know, we still don't really have a number from that from him. And it's also interesting that, you know, he's been quietly doing this work in Wisconsin, and he's, you know, famous locally, he's got buildings named after him. But Outside of Madison, I don't think anyone's ever heard of him. And I was very mad when you told me about him because I'd never read an article about him in the Times. I'd never seen a, a story about him in 60 Minutes. And he's had this amazing career. And still, as a 90-something-year-old, he's still an active scientist. And as listeners can tell from the recording, he's still, you know, all in on research. At 92, yeah, 92 <laughs> years old. Well, that is one of our goals here at Before We Die, to celebrate people like Professor Hector DeLuca and get his name out there to the general public. Because it was just truly an honor to spend some time with someone as celebrated and as humble as he is. That is our show for today. Thanks to our co-hosts, Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. And we just want to remind everybody that you can listen to our Lab Before Slab mini episodes where Sandy, John, and Craig geek out about other fascinating happenings in the med tech world. And as always, our hope is that some of the cutting edge technology that we talk about on this show, like UVB light therapy for MS, will be available to the patients who need it before we die. Thanks for listening. Before We Die is an Offscript Health production. The executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Before We Die is mixed by Kyle Moore. Our Before We Die panel of experts and creators of the show are Sandra Miller, John McMahon, and Craig Allman. If you like the show, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Leave us a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Share your healthcare stories with us and we might just play them on the air in a future episode. 
For more information, visit Offscript.com. That's Offscript, no T, dot com.